This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. It's my pleasure to introduce and I get to moderate tonight's panel featuring Rex Pickett, uh, Karen Attic, and Brian Schottlander. And so uh, I'm very much honored to share the stage with him tonight. As you know, uh, Rex is uh, a UC San Diego alumnus and Academy Award-winning author. Um, he's most notably known for the critically acclaimed, or to be as the critically acclaimed author of the novel Sideways, which was adapted into an award-winning feature film directed by Alexander Payne. Uh, Sideways received multiple Academy Award and Global Golden Globe nominations, and of course won uh, both of those awards. Um, Rex is also the author of two Sideways sequels and the screenwriter of My Mother Dreams the Satan's Disciples in New York, uh, <laughs> which captured the 2000 Academy Award Best Live Action Short. And Rex, I actually watched that yesterday on YouTube. It was amazing. Yeah, it was directed by my ex-wife, who I met here at a Manny Farber film class and uh, we were watching Robert Aldridge's Kiss Me Deadly. And honestly, and then we went off to make two feature films together. And uh, she produced them, but unfortunately acted in them. So that ended that part of my career. But then uh, she went off to the AFI to reinvent herself as a director. And that was her thesis film. It was an original script I wrote in three days as an exercise. And it won the 2000 Academy Award. She invited her hus new husband there, not me. <laughs> Then she said, I can't get any more tickets. Then she thanked her mother and she stood up. So she lied to me. That's what everyone does in Hollywood. Uh, and I was at a party and I'm, I'm, tears are coming out of my eyes, whatever. But she did give me the Oscar for two weeks. It's amazing how much free wine you can get at wine bars when you're holding one of those. It's incredible. But yeah, so, but when she read Sideways, she told me to burn it. And I'm not, uh, she said, it'll ruin your career, Rex. I said, Barbara, I don't have a career. Uh, so anyway, uh, but yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I'm yeah, glad. No. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, Sorry no, it's, that, that's Rex. fine. I, honestly, she, I, I had to get divorced. I would never have written sideways. She was starting to uh, colonize my unconscious. Uh, <laughs> and you can't, artists can't have that, you know. That's grounds for divorce, ladies and gentlemen. They will uh, come back to that. Okay, okay. Right, right, right. I know we're supposed to keep this uh, <laughs> PG-13. I, I so uh, um, as you all know, Rex is the, the author of The Archivist. Um, and one reason uh, we're so closely connected with Rex is he is, has deposited his archives in our Mandeville Special Collections. Right, so let me move on to Karen. Uh, Karen Raddick uh, is, has a master's in library information science from Rutgers University, a master's in Victorian literature from the University of Nottingham, which I find fascinating, and a bachelor's in English from Dickinson College. Uh, she's worked in special collections and archives at Rutgers since 2004, first as a processing archivist and now as a digital archivist. Um, her scholarship explores the use of an archival lens in fiction, uh, which is exactly what we're talking about tonight, uh, and includes an article that I actually want to go read now. Um, that It takes an archival view of Brand Stoker's Dracula. So fascinating. Um, and then rounding out our panel is uh, a dear friend to the library, uh, UC San Diego Li University Librarian Emeritus, Brian Schottlander. So uh, Brian served as our university librarian from 1999 until his retirement in 2017. So I, Brian, I aspire to such an amazing and long tenure. Um, and he is currently one of the principals of Rework Library Consulting. Uh, Brian came to San Diego from UCLA where he was an associate university librarian for collection services. 
And uh, towards the end of his tenure there, he served as the senior associate to the executive director of the California Digital Library, where he launched the Online Archive of California, which is one of the signature um, you know, nationally known archival, online archival platforms. So it's just amazing work. Uh, Brian is active in the American Library Association, of course, across all our profession, um, and is one of our profession's most respected consultants with expertise in collections management, workflow optimization, and the application of technology in libraries. Um, he's received the numerous awards, and I'll just call out two very notable ones. Uh, first, the Margaret Mann Citation, and second, the Melville Dewey Award. So really uh, a notable person in our field. So let me... Um, Pause and let's welcome all of our speakers. I thought, Rex, maybe I could open by throwing the first question to you. Um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to write The Archivist. I got an offer to go to the country of Chile to write Sideways Chile. And I was in L.A., and I'd been in L.A. for three decades, and I truly loathed that city. Uh, it had gotten to the point where you thought long and hard whether you were going to go to Whole Foods and shop. And... Um, and so I gave up my apartment, and uh, Linda Clausen, uh, the wonderful director here, um, had s actually said to me at a, I did a faculty club event in 2005, we'd love to take your collection, you know. Then after that faculty club thing where I was fairly irreverent, and I think the tape has been erased, um, I think she withdrew the offer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> she wanted to, you know, but... Uh, so when I left, uh, you know, to go to Chile, I was going to give up. I was literally just going to give up my apartment and everything. And I had boxes and boxes of writings. And um, so I called Linda and or emailed her and because uh, you can't get her on the phone. And um, <laughs> and uh, she said, no, we'd love them. And uh, so with an intern, I dropped off. I literally left University of California, San Diego to go to USC film school in 80, whatever, with five boxes of writings. That's all I had and some books. And I came back with, I had to give all my book collection. I came back with 50 boxes and no children. That was it. That's my life. And I dropped them off down in, I don't know, wherever, uh, you know, uh, a loading dock facility, you guys down there. And, uh, and I, I honestly, uh, I thought they were just going to write picket on the boxes and put them, you know, somewhere. But uh, as I said, I thought, well, okay, that's cheaper than public storage. Um, <laughs> you know, seriously, that's what I thought. And I went off to Chile, and I wrote that novel. I came back, and we did um, Sideways, the play here at La Jolla Playhouse with Des McEnough. And, you know, and that was, it broke all records, and that was wonderful and everything else. And they had another uh, faculty club dinner. And I went down and, and saw my collection, and it was uh, you know, that's my whole life there. And, you know, in these gray document boxes and, you know, and there it was. And, uh, you know, so lovingly and wonderfully, I guess you use the words processed and organized. I, I said archive, but I can't use that as a, as a verb I've since found out. And, um, but, um, and I just, you know, and I met the woman who processed my papers and, you know, I started, wow, this is an interesting world. I didn't know what this world was. And um, but to see your work there, your life's work, you know, uh, it, it's just such an in, incredible honor. And um, and then, uh, you know, that there were these people working in, in ostensible anonymity, which they are. And and then, uh, of course, there's also the writer in me too. starts saying, OK, you know, and um, I started thinking, you know, no one's really written about, you know, archivist and 
and then you have to find the story in a way. And uh, but it was, um, but it was, I think was you know meeting the person who processed my papers. <laughs> Just see, <laughs> sorry. And that really, um, you know, started an ideation process because that's what I, I do. That's my life. And um, and I thought, you know, in a way, well, there's a funny story. Um, so um, she said, uh, "Who's Irv Tuns?" And I said, "What?" And I blushed. And it was a it was a pseudonym I used for a porno novel I'd written when I was twenty. <laughs> And say so you're supposed to curate your uh, archive, whatever. Um, but um, assiduous archivist that she is, I think she read it from cover to cover. Um, well, you know, it gets lonely down in the stacks. Um, Fifty Shades of Property. Uh, but uh, but it was just it was just. I mean, I, you can. T- I mean, I literally, I did not tear up. I just, I'm not like that. It was just such a moving experience. And then you take that leap for the. Few of you have probably read the book, but you you take that narrative leap from that. Emo- if I can find that emotional experience, and then I started to think of a uh, of a young archivist um, who comes in as a project archivist to take over the um, processing of the papers of a famous author. So now you start to fictionalize in a way, but it's really it, it was really seeing my archive and 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 talking. To and she's here tonight, Kate Said. She's you know my archivist. Well, she is I, not my. She's the, an archivist, you know, not mine. And um, and she really introduced me to a world. I mean, I'm tired of you know cop shows and ER doctors and lawyers and whatever. Why not an archivist? They you know it's, you're giving over your those boxes. You know, have your especially me. It's personal for me. You know, all my diaries. In fact, I said to her at one point, I said, "You know me better than I do." Seriously, because she'd read everything, and um, and um, you know, it really was the um, that was really the inspiration for it was giving my papers over, not knowing what was going to happen, then finding out, and then seeing that there is a whole world here, and and then I made a leap that archivists are like detectives, in a way, and and then then I think Kate at one point said something about dark archives, which is dark storage, and when she said dark archives, that I, I don't know. Because I'm a big fan of Raymond Chandler and mysteries, so um, um, that combination of things. So I think between Long Goodbye and maybe there's a tragic love story in there too, and that's um, kind of my uh, I love tragic love stories, you know, uh, like The English Patient or something like that. And so it, it started to kind of grow and build and ideate. And then I um, I did some other things, and I wrote it as an eight episode limited series, and I, I was so swept up in it. I wrote the whole thing out. Uh, 500, you just don't do that. You write the first episode and your agent hopefully sells it. You know, you write the pilot. And I wrote it all out. And then I got a call from Blackstone Publishing. They did all the sideways audiobooks. And um, I said, we're now a publisher now. And we, we love your work or whatever. And do you have anything? I said, yeah, I just wrote an eight episode limited series adapted from a novel I didn't write. <laughs> and now I want to write it. And I sat down and I wrote, and so, you know, it's long. I wrote the first draft in 90 days. Just poured out of me. I mean, literally in a total cataract creativity. And um, Wow. That's yeah, no, it's, it, was, it was just a really moving experience for me because this university meant everything to me. I grew up in Claremont, which is just, you know, I was just headed down a stoner surfer motorcycle, you know, early death of second all. And... Um, 
and I came here. I, I luckily got in. I don't know how I got in, actually. You know, someone must have passed the white envelope. But, um, and it changed my life. I came here 10 miles away from Claremont, and this, this was just, just a citadel of learning, and I was just exposed to these great minds. And, and, and that library I used to walk from Muir over there through the eucalypti and whatever, and be Brian and Michael Davidson and Linda were probably the only ones in there. I'd sit on the seventh floor all by myself reading. And this university means so much to me. And, um, you know, I mean, the book to me is like a love letter to this university. I mean, it's, sure, it's a story and there's a murder mystery and everything else going on. But it's really a love letter to this university and what it means to me. My high school, I could care less about. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, so, you know. uh, Rex. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, uh, I, there's something that stood out to me in, as well as you talked about this book is a, a love letter to the university, a love letter to archives. Uh, Karen and Brian, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like, what is working in an archive like? Um, and what is working in an archive like? So, uh, maybe, or a library like? So, Karen, tell us. One of the things that archivists will tell you, uh, you know, a lot of the things that we love about it is that you kind of get to snoop around in other people's lives and you get to read other people's mail and if, you know, a certain type of personality that's very attractive. Um, <laughs> I will say there might be a little more tedium than than Rex describes in, in his book, although there were times when I was reading it when I kind of felt like, okay, this is a little too much like my day job. So this is not necessarily giving me the escape that I that I yearn for in, in fiction, but really interesting. Um, definitely there are sort of the flip side of, of what Rex is saying, these sort of very rewarding experiences where you, you get to see that the work that you've done matters in some way, um, that you, you make a connection for somebody and um, I used to really enjoy doing reference because that is where you get those sort of detective stories. Somebody has a question and you need to kind of hunt through the, the clues that other people have left you to try to get them the answer. Uh, so I, I always like to think of what I call my favorite reference question was somebody who got in touch with me and said, you know, I, I didn't go to Rutgers. I went to Princeton. I hope that's okay. And I said, yeah, that's, it's fine. You're down the road from us, whatever. And he said, I just found out that my uncle who died in World War I I found something online. Apparently, he went to Rutgers for one year. You know, do you happen to have anything about him? And I said, okay, what's your uncle's name? And we have biographical files in the archives. So I was able to find his uncle's name. And as I was going through his biographical file, I found a reference to something that I wasn't aware of called the War Service Bureau records, uh, which during World War I at Rutgers, somebody set up a a clearinghouse where they had all the Rutgers men send letters into Rutgers about what they were doing during World War I. And they would send these letters about what was happening at Rutgers. So it was like, you know, Paul Rubson's playing football. And then Paul Rubson's playing this other sport because he was playing all these sports at that time. So I went and I found that folder as well. Um, just made some photocopies, mailed it off to the guy, sort of a regular, interesting to me to know about these things. And when he got it, he wrote to me and he said, you know, there was a photograph from the alumni bulletin. I sent that as well. And he said, you know, I never saw a picture of my uncle before. You know, he was, he was dead before I was born. My family wouldn't talk about him. But they had this very strong streak of pacifism. I never quite understood. So I had this moment where I had this email, and I forwarded it to my, my mentor, who I was lucky enough to work with. And I said, this is why I'm an archivist. You know, I've given this man part of his family history back because we, we kept it. And I was able to, to find it. So those moments were, are probably very rewarding and they, they kind of balance off the, the tedium. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is amazing. I, um, 
I think uh, like in the library world, we talk about serendipity, Brian, and that unexpected finding of something. Um, now, our audience may not appreciate this, but we think about librarians and archivists as different sorts of professions. So, Brian, I, I think you are a librarian, right? Not an archivist. Is that a fair statement? So, uh, what, what's the difference? Well, uh, that's a really good question. In fact, I was I was saying to Karen earlier that it, it's interesting to be on this panel as a librarian because I'm not an archivist, and my archivist colleagues in the room, like Laurel McPhee and others who work in archives, would would be the first to point that out. In, in a loving way, of course. Um, but, but the difference really um, has to do with the, the depth to which archivists interact with the material they are charged with stewarding. Um, and so the, the, res- the kind of research that Karen describes and, and, and Rex describes, albeit in a fictional way, this sort of in-depth getting to know the subject um, is is quite unusual in the profession. It's a, it's a very different way of approaching content. Um, and, and to be honest with you, my my interaction with archives, which which has been substantial over the last twenty five plus years, has not been as an archivist, but as somebody who has promoted their use or has used them himself in in research. Um, thank you for mentioning the online archive of California because when I was seconded to the California Digital Library in 1997, it was in the name of promoting the use of archival resources. Uh, and that had begun with approaching them from the vantage point of creating access mechanisms of various sorts. Uh, and then it, it was a logical step to say, well, why can't we actually have the material itself? I mean, it's nice to guide us to it, but we'd actually like the material itself. Can you help us with that? And so we began a, a fairly massive scanning undertaking, and, and that's described in Rex's book for, for your particular archive as well. And Karen, of course, is a digital archivist, so she now lives and breathes this. Um, but in those days, this being 1997, it was pretty unusual. And so the, the first object of our attention was the um, Japanese-American relocation um, archive at UCLA, which is a, a meta-archive of, of many archives. Uh, and we worked very closely with the Japanese-American National Museum in L.A., and um, selected an, uh, an archive that we thought had an important story to tell, um, and that would be visually compelling in and of itself. And that was the Estelle Ishigo archive. Now, Estelle Ishigo, I learned in the process of working on this project, um, was a white woman who was interred in Manzanar with her Japanese husband, um, and was was told during the relocation she didn't have to go, and she said, no, I'm, I'm going. Uh, and when she got there, uh, ironically, enjoyed a number of privileges that Japanese Americans did not um, because she was white. And one of them was she was allowed to document life in the camps. She was an artist and a photographer, and she photographed Manzanar voluminously and painted Manzanar voluminously, and she wouldn't have been able to do either. Um, and so she was able to tell the story of the relocation of, to that particular camp in a way that wouldn't have otherwise been the case, which we thought was a very good thing. 
until it was pointed out to us by one group of users of this content, well, that's all well and good, but you know, she wasn't actually Japanese. And that's kind of a problem. Uh, and, and that left us with an interesting conundrum um, because we, we felt it was important content, that the story it had to tell was important, but we wanted to honor the fact that while it was her story, it wasn't their story. Um, and it, it allowed us the, to reach out to our colleagues at the Japanese American National Museum who were much more adept at telling that story than we were. Um, to begin to build a narrative um, that was properly respectful of, of the circumstances of, uh, that led to that particular archive. Um, I could go on. One can about archives, right? Um, and, but I won't. Uh, but, but that's one little taste of my, my interacting with them. That, uh, it's an amazing story, and you're right. Uh, archives are, by design, uneven, right? That they dive so deeply on a topic by, by virtue of the collections we hold, right? You, you get to see deeply into an author's life and their experience. Um, but you don't necessarily get that broad, you know, you're not going to have the parallel collection that goes with it. Um, Rex, in the book, you talked a lot about the digital archive. Um, it was such a big piece of kind of how the, the novel played out. Um, maybe this is a question to Karen as much as you, but I'm just, I'm curious how, why the notion of a digital archive stood out to you and, uh, maybe, maybe talk well, a I mean, little bit about those. Well, I mean, for those, life. I mean, for the few who read the book. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, what I needed was a place where the archivists who supposedly drowned accidentally had hid things. And so when, and I'm thinking as a fiction writer, so I'm thinking of, you know, these dark archives or dark storage or whatever. And I talked to a guy at BYU who owned, he was a digital archivist and he was going to retire in a year and he was just like, putting up tons of stuff, digitizing it. And I said, how would we know where to find it? And he goes, well, I have a notebook. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? You're digitizing tons of, you know, I, um, what, what, uh, we lose the notebook. So to me, it's almost like a cosmology of stuff. Who knows what's out there? And I think, um, you know, Kate said to me at one point, she said, Smithsonian only has 2% available to the public. 98% isn't. Now, I'm not saying it's all digitized. It could also have stuff has restrictions. So as a novelist, you know, I'm looking for conflict. It's interesting. I'm looking for things that are like, why is, I mean, we've, if we take James Baldwin's archive, I mean, it has tons of restrictions because there's probably some pretty sensitive letters and things in there that can only be whatever. So all those things, you know, are, you know, that they're still there. So we're talking, I love some of the deeper themes, preserving the historical record, which is exactly what you were going to, Brian, and also what you were saying too. And I, you know, I'm interested in that theme as well, but that you can have things out there on dark storage, but only certain people, my heroine, Emily Snow, this young project archivist who's sort of like, sort of like, uh, you know, comes in for one project and she goes out, you know, and hopefully maybe she'll go on to sleuth another day in a way, you know, to discover something out there. And then, oh, my God, it's like a Pandora's box. It just opens up, you know. So that's, you know, from a fictional side. Yes, there's no question I romanticize the profession. Sure, I also a, romanticize. You're a novelist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I, well, but I. I romanticize the profession, you know, I mean, I also romanticize hitching posts and his wine suck, you know, so I, uh, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> I didn't know he was going to, you know, it was going to be a movie. But um, but the, in this case, you know, I, I needed to do that. And so the dark archives spoke to me. Yeah. 
from a fiction level. And, uh, and then it was just a, a matter of continuing to research and get it right. You know, how do we get to, you know, this directory of stuff and other things? And then, um, and then we get into ethics, crossing ethical lines, too. We've talked about this. When the main character confronts the professor who is stuff is hidden out there. That's crossing ethical lines. And again, conflict. And I, I it's a, it's a building's Roman at that point, if you think of it, because it's, is she going to grow up and is she going to take these risks? And okay, most archivists probably won't because they're concerned about their health insurance, but, um, which, you know, is fine. You know, I and they have ethics. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, but that's fine. Um, but no, seriously, you know, what, what chance? Because you're talking about getting into people's personal lives, and I think that's what got to me. I thought it was just like myself. I was just going to be, no, you know, somebody really went through that collection, and you know, on a, you know, folder by folder, document by document basis, and this is personal stuff. I write, I mean, journals and everything else. So what if some of it is hidden? What if some of it? And we could get into another subject here too, because in this climate we're in, how much are is a collection, for example? curated and scrubbed today because you wouldn't want certain things in there because you have the legacy of uh, we don't need to get on to, you know, but in my case, I I mean, like I said, I mean, I, here's my boxes, you know, it's porno novels, everything, you know, whatever, I don't care. Um, but maybe I would have gone through it a little more carefully uh, had, I, had you but no, known. <laughs> no, no, known what I know now, yeah. But I, I, I you know, I, I'm an open book, as, as you can tell. I, I have nothing to hide, you know, whatever. Um, but um, fortunately, I have fewer sands, you know, left in the top than I do in the bottom. So, uh, you know, I don't really care. But um, but I, honestly, that's it. I, I love the personal side, what Karen brings up and what Brian brought up in a way that, you know, in preserving the historical record. What, what and, and again, something we always had way back then, you know, with our what is truth? And, and to me, archivists are at that threshold to me standing there. What is the truth of this person's life? What is the truth of this? You know, the thing that, you know, that you mentioned. And uh, I always thought, you know, what is in art? What is truth? You know, and so and 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 again, the big line in the novel when she approaches the professor is, you know, dumps all this stuff on him that she's found, you know, that he's buried. Well, the woman who was his lover buried, whatever. Um, how do you want to be remembered? That line really um, grabs me in a way. I mean, how do you want to be remembered? You know, and. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, that's about truth and it's warts and all and everything else. Wow. I, Karen, so you work in uh, digital archives. So you work on EADs probably and building encoded archival descriptions. I, I think my question is, like, what are the mechanics? Like, what do you do, you know, when you, you're surfacing this collection? You're actually writing that biographical note about something. So what's that like? Right. Um, right. So when you're, you're processing a collection, you... You want to write what we call, you know, the finding aid, so that people can navigate the collection and get to the thing that they're they they're trying to get to. Um, and it's a balancing act in some ways because you can't think thinking in terms of paper. Though we were talking about digital, also, you just can't get at everything. If you think of the sheer volume of what you create on a daily basis between your emails, your social media, um, you know, forget about paper. So going back to digital, what you're doing on your iPhone. You know, you're you're generating these records, so the idea is to somehow provide a, a guide to to what the records are. 
so if you're if you're lucky, you you have information about your subject. Um, so presumably, you know, Kate, who was working on Rex's papers, was able to construct a biography. But sometimes you're not that fortunate, so you have to do the kind of research. And I always felt when I was doing processing that anything I dug up was important to put in the finding aid because some of this can be very hard to find. And and as you know, at a university, things change all the time. You know, you're this position and then you're that position and trying to find out when things changed and how they changed can, can take much more effort than you would expect. So it's this balancing act of, you know, what are people going to think is important? You know, what things are in there that people wouldn't expect that they might be interested in? Um, maybe somebody was a science professor, but they had some sort of hobby that, you know, was very important to them that somebody who was interested in that hobby would want to know about. And then there's just literally going through the, I'm going to say the boxes and folders as opposed to, to the files and saying box one, file one is letters from so-and-so and box one, file two is letters back to so-and-so. And again, the idea is just to to allow somebody to navigate. And there are discussions about you need to actually write it down letter by letter by letter by letter, but that gets too long. That takes way too much time. Or you can just say box one is letters, but that's not enough information. Um, somebody's going to have to crawl through all those boxes. So just trying to, to kind of strike that balance where you you make it navigable and then with a lot of collections, if they're longer, you, you break them down into series according to themes. You want to generally go by what the creator has has given you. We call it the original order. Um, but sometimes you need to be a little sneaky about it because sometimes the original order makes no sense and you, you kind of move some things around a little bit. And then what you were saying about, about EAD, uh, the encoded archival description, that's just a way to... If you, you produce a finding it in a Word document, it's a, it's a method of coding that we use that kind of meets archival standards so that these descriptions are kind of belong, encoded in a certain way. Um, now it's much more automated. I used to do the EAD by hand, so I, I, kind of, I kind of miss those days. It's just really about thinking about how somebody might go about seeking this information and trying to, to provide those entry points. And I'll just say also it's the same with with digitized objects where you have the metadata. And the idea that you hope is that somebody types something into Google and they're going to find this object that you're, you're describing. And then hopefully they can find something and then find the other links to know this is part of a collection. And this collection is held at this library. What you don't want is this thing just free-floating in space so that nobody can connect it to where it comes from. So it's all these, these webs and interlacings. That's a really great point. And so it's like the the context that the object lives in kind of puts a little bit of truth around it or it helps you interpret that. And so I'm, uh, maybe, Brian, this is a question to you. Of when, you uh, when you think about how somebody identifies truth in an archive, you know, that when Rex created all of this stuff, he wasn't thinking about what the truth was, um, right? You were just compiling your collection. So, Brian, how do you think about that? Like, how, how does a library and archive represent uh, a collection once it's been passed on? That's a really good question, and, and I want to marry that to a point that Rex made. He used the word curate, um, which is the first time that word's been used in this conversation yet. So um, the library can curate. 
the archivist can curate, uh, but so can the person creating the archive. And in fact, there are famous examples, the Jermaine Greer archive, for instance, a very famous example of the creation of an archive as a performative exercise, right? Jermaine Greer's archive was created by her specifically to present her the way she wished to be remembered. And this is an interesting And point. she had many interns helping her do that. Wow. So you come to it as a researcher thinking, ooh, I'm going to learn all this really cool stuff about Jermaine Greer that she wants you to learn the way she wants you to learn it, right? Now, that, that's kind of an extreme example, but that's, on, that's sort of on one end. Um, the, the person who just, you know, accumulates stuff and hands it to a library is kind of on the other end. Uh, and then most of us are sort of in the middle. You know, we do a certain amount of organizing. Your boxes were probably sort of organized. Um, and that's where people like <laughs> Karen and... Laurel and others, Kate, um, you know, where their expertise comes to bear. And I, I'm, not as, I'm not sure that it has as much to do with, is this called a Colbertism, truthiness, um, as it does with, with fairness and a, and a kind of fair representation of the individual an organized representation of the individual so that you can sort of see the arc of the person's work and or life. Um, recognizing that there are always surprises. I, I went to do my first research in the, in the Berg collection at NYPL uh, in the William S. Burroughs archives when those archives were released to the public. And as you said, there's many files in there, you know, correspondence to so-and-so, correspondence from so-and-so. Um, and yet, as good as the archival description is, and it's good, I have a copy of the finding aid, it's about 80 pages long. Um, what, what it doesn't say, of course, is, well, what's in the correspondence, right? And so, as a researcher, you, you're just thinking, well, hmm, interesting. Correspondence from Maurice Gerodius to Barney Rossett, correspondence from Barney Rossett to Maurice Gerodius, and then you get into the file and you realize those dudes hated each other. <laughs> and the correspondence is pretty nasty. Now, you know, but the archivist isn't going to tell you that because that's not what archivists do. Um, so, you know, the, the truth that an archivist brings to the collection she's organizing will get you so far and, and then somebody's going to have to dig a whole lot deeper, uh, as they do in Rex's novel. I mean, but what happens when you find things in there, a question to Karen and you, Brian, actually, you know, that are compromising. Maybe they weren't aware of it, but you know if you went up higher with it that it might get 86th. But you as an archivist, you're sitting there at that moment, just you with that compromising, that might, you know, compromise that material. What do you do? I mean, that's kind of one well, of the questions. I'm going to let you address that one first. <laughs> yeah, I... I Thankfully, I'm, I'm low enough down the chain that I talk to my boss <laughs> or, 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 or my, my former mentor. I, I did have a collection that sounds a little bit like your, you know, your experience about being asked about the, the name on the novel where somebody had, had left floppy disks and we printed them out and it was a very personal journal. And I was just going through it saying like he he doesn't know he gave us this you know he doesn't know that we we have this there's there's 
you know, there's no way. Um, and thankfully, this was a professor who was still kind of in, engaged. So he came in one day to look at his papers, and he just said, oh, you know, there's, there's some personal things in here. And said, well, here's some, some pink strips of paper. Just put them anywhere that you want to flag, and we'll just restrict them. And that's, there were lots of pink flags kind of hanging out. But he, but he didn't pull it. He, he did kind of want this to be, to be kept, but he just kind of recognized, I mean, there's, there's third-party privacy issues. There were just things in there that he could have been fine about being open about, but you know, there were other people named, and it, there was just no way that it was going to you know, be put in a finding aid and just kind of left for people to find. But do you think, Brian, there's more Jermaine Greering going on today in this moment? Well, I mean, that's, inter- that's fascinating because you would think I, I would want to, well, not me, but represent yourself in such a way because it's her legacy and it's, there's money involved in that legacy too. And there also could be a taking away of money from that estate if they find something that you know, now would be politically incorrect or whatever. To, to be perfectly honest with you, I think there, there is probably not more of that going oh, okay. on oh. um, because, frankly, it's too much work. It's a lot of work. Yeah, no, I imagine. I mean, just think, just think about what archival processing is like, period, much less putting your, you know, how do I want to present myself to the world is a really big question and a boatload of work associated with that. So I rather doubt it, frankly. Yeah. I mean, Jermaine Greer is, an, you know, an unusual woman. Uh, and, and so f- for her, maybe that made sense. Um, I do... I do think that, I think it's fair to say, Karen, you know, most archivists want, right, as much to be as much accessible as possible, right? Absolutely. Stipulating that that isn't always going to be the case. Um, and you at least, but even then, you at least want people to know. We have this stuff. You can't have it for the next 50 years, but we have it. it it's, it's safe. Um, the worst thing that can happen to an archivist is for somebody to say, I want that back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I don't want that included in the archive. That which was isn't my just, next question. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it, I don't mean to suggest that never happens because, of course, it does. But, but that isn't what the archivist wants, right? Yeah. Wow. But uh, Rex, I'm curious. We have your papers up until 2011, I think. Yeah, no, it needs a new accession, new, a new tranche. What? A new tranche. Thank you. Yeah, I, I've done a lot. Uh, I quit drinking 12 years ago, so I've been very productive. Yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what will your archive look like when it comes to us? Will it be paper still? Will it be all of your iPhones? Well, what I find is if I... <laughs> Well, you know, that gets an interesting question about email because, you know, there were a lot of journals that were handwritten in my original archive. But as we kind of got around 2000, really my journal are emails and now even texts because I, I write texts on a computer. So they're long. And of course, most people are reading them on their phone. Jeez, there's Rexy and <laughs> blows out their iPhone. But that's, that, I mean, there's a, I write some really long emails and texts and stuff. And I actually found a, well, it's actually in the novel, you know, how you get to those emails or whatever. But I I found print out as much as you can (laughs) because, see, here's the thing, you know, uh, Kate said to me, see, there you have, you have 27 linear feet, you know. And I thought, wow, that's impressive. And -and so-and-so has 54 linear feet. So now I have linear feet envy, you know. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, if I printed out some of those 3.5 floppies, you know, everything on them, not that they would always, you'd want 
40 drafts of My Mother Dreams of Satan's Disciples, another reason for the divorce. Um, but um, anyway, um, I, I would come as a, I would try to do as much hard copy as I could because all you're going to do is digitize it and it's going to be out there. And who's, you know, I'd rather have it, you know, something physical. So I'm, I'm printing out stuff now, you know. That's good to know. That's good to know. All right. Uh, let's see if there's any questions. Uh, yes. Yeah, I had some questions about uh, there was a controversy recently with San Diego State. Um, some A couple had donated a collection, I believe, of jazz recordings, and San Diego State uh, wanted money to manage that collection, and it really offended the, the donors. So could you talk about the economics of... Uh, what's involved and um, what's expected when you make a donation. I'm also wondering what tool, as a somebody that was formerly uh, a computer person, uh, are there is technology assisting at all in being able to deal with the costs involved in whatever work you do? Thank you. Those are. Those are two amazing questions. Brian, I'm curious, uh, could I turn to you for the, the economics of archival processing? Yeah, well, you know, like anything in, in the world and like anything in libraries, um, nothing is free, or, or generally it's not free. Um, and so any of us who've been involved um, in the management of, of archival collections of any magnitude um, have have long been working on documenting the costs associated with their processing. Um, and we do that for two reasons. Um, one, often as not, we're asking somebody for money to help us do that processing, whether it's the donor of an archive or uh, some extramural funder. Um, and two, because often people like Eric get asked by their administrators, so what are you spending all that money on? Um, and it behooves us to have to have good answers to those questions. So, uh, five years ago, when I was uh, still in Eric's seat, if if you had asked me, what does it cost to process an archive? Uh, I could have told you, basically down to the linear foot. Um, having said that, uh, it, it's a kind of gradient of costs, meaning that, to your earlier point about how archives are organized, to organize an archive to this level will cost this much. To organize it to the next level will cost that much additionally and on down. Uh, if you then subsequently get into actually digitizing the content of the archive to make it accessible on the web, there's yet another cost. And so there are all of these incremental costs, and they are not inconsequential. Um, university libraries, at least, I, I can't speak for private archives, but university archi library archives are in no way, shape, or form um, adequately resourced. Uh, and I'm talking about the Yales, the Harvards, the Chicagos, the Columbias, not to mention the UCSDs of the world, um, to process all of the material, archival material they have down to the level it could be processed if money were no object. Unfortunately, money is an object. Um, and so typically we tend to think of you know, folder-level processing, 
Uh, and then we, if we digitize, we tend to do selective digitization as opposed to wholesale digitization in order to manage those costs. So you're making a lot of choices, A. And then I also wonder, and I brought this up with Karen today, in private archives, because they can probably poach archivists or whatever, are we just going to be preserving the historical record of the rich? It's a challenging question. I mean, it is a challenging question. Yeah, I think it's, uh, and it, it does get back to how you build relationships in your archives and how you seek out collections um, to make sure you have, you know, the collections that are meaningful to a community. Uh, Karen, I'm curious your thoughts on, on this topic or um, the, maybe the parallel topic of how technology influences um, the creation and the management of archives. Well, I... I have to agree with what Brian says about just the cost of it um, and the cost of, of, we get people who will say things like, oh, have you thought of digitizing such and such collection? And it's like, of course we've thought of digitizing. (laughs) Um, And we have a lot of, you know, what I like to call like, I'm the idea person, I'm not the implementer, which is, well, you know, everybody thinks of these things, but it it just, it costs a lot of money. And um, I'm not sure UCSD seems to be better at this than Rutgers, because we do have quite a backlog because, because of this expense issue, because of the under-resourcing. Um, with the, the technology piece, you know, certainly things have gotten cheaper than, than they used to be. Um, I work with vendors for, you know, we do send things out to vendors for some projects because it's just easier with, with large-scale digitization. And um, everybody's gotten kind of better and smarter, and they're able to to move things along, um, but they're also, everybody's moving slowly, I think a little bit, um, you know, post-pandemic anyway, and, and the timing never works out. With other types of materials, there's just that, you know, that factor that things are always changing. So the solution that you have today is only good for today. You have to think in terms of migrating and what's going to move things along because, you know, anything that's born digital, the way it was created is not the way it's going to be retrieved. Um, and interestingly enough, I'm just thinking about how I, I work on a collection where we digitize newspapers for microfilm. And when I talk to the students and I talk about digitizing for microfilm, I say, does anybody know what microfilm actually is? And I get a lot of blank looks. But what I like to point out is that it's still a preservation standard because with microfilm, all you need is a light source and a way of magnifying it, and you can still read it. Whereas anything that's digital and that kind of just lives somewhere you know online if the power goes out you're not getting to it so it's kind of this interesting thing you're investing a lot of time and energy into trying to keep these things you know findable and and accessible uh, but one one sort of wrong turn with it and you know it's, it can be just as easily lost so so it's definitely a, a tricky balance well in fact you're right in the um the preservation world we make many copies of the digital objects, and we actually check to make sure those digital objects don't change over time. It's something called bit rot. Um, and so it's actually a different way of approaching preservation. Um, I think I'll stop myself. I'm getting ready to get nerdy. Um, <laughs> actually, can, can I get nerdy and come back to Rex's question yeah. about are we only going to archive the content of the rich? So, so I want to make two points in that regard. I, I, I think the answer is no, and I, and I think the answer is no for two reasons. Um, one, I think social justice movements of various kinds of over time um, have have um, facilitated the and in fact have forced 
the archiving of, of material from people other than the rich, right? So you can go all the way back to MLK and probably back further than that, but certainly George Floyd, BLM, uh, Planned Parenthood, the right to vote. I mean, that just drove our archival content into the hands of, of any institution willing to take it. And, and libraries are notable for being very willing, right? We are. The, the second point I would make is that archives and the special collections within which they often reside serve as kind of gravitational hubs, right? So we get calls, people like Eric and I, da daily saying, we understand you guys have a pretty cool archive. Uh, don't you have the Dr. Seuss archives? Um, there's this printer down in National City who's been, who was printing during the Cesar Chavez days. He was the printer for the movement. His print shop's going out of business. Would you like his archives? And we're like, hell yes, we'd like his archives, right? So, and, and that took nothing on our part, and that was the community itself reaching out to us, and, and that's exactly what we want, and, and I, don't think, I don't think we need to worry it's only gonna be about the rich, I'm happy to say. My question is directed to Brian. It has to do with the decreasing number of actual volumes, books in the library, uh, due to digitization, I presume. Uh, do, you, do you see that trend continuing, and does that have the effect in the long run to make libraries more concerned with arch, being arch, doing archival work as opposed to the general circulation work that was done, say, 10, 20 years ago? Uh, I appreciate your directing that question to me, and, and I'd be happy to answer it or give you my answer for it, but I'd like to ask Eric to answer that question, actually. Oh, dear. Yeah. So I think uh, books, printed books, are definitely used less uh, today because there's so much information online. Um, one of the revolutions that's occurred in libraries over the last 10 years, I'd, go, I'd say, is the realization of the power of digitization. So digitizing books unlocks the potential or kind of unlocks those books for current and future generations. So uh, something Brian spearheaded way before my time at UC, and I was very proud to continue, was our participation in the Google Books Project. Uh, it's just a small example. And so that, Brian, it's 40 million volumes in Hathi Trust. Um, and so I think that while we see less physical print book use, the digital version uh, is seeing a lot of use. And this is one of the reasons why libraries are just such amazing institutions. Because we bought all those books in the first place means we get to say how they're used in the future. And it goes actually straight to your question of the power of building archives. Is it, um, uh, Rex, you said this earlier, kind of, I mean, archives are love letters to the future. I think you said it slightly differently, but... Um, you know, the things we're collecting today actually will form the foundation for research in the future. And so, yeah, archives are very powerful, but as is the, the printed word and the digitally printed word, I think. So, Brian, what's your version of that answer? Well, all of that, plus um, the kind of fixed resource base that most libraries have to contend with, right? Um, yeah, we, we get small increases every year if we're lucky. Um, maybe those increases are sufficient to keep with uh, keep pace with inflation, but they're usually not. Um, and so the fixed resource-based nature of libraries is such that we're constantly figuring out 
how to allocate and or reallocate a fixed set of, of economic resources, right? So to the degree that I don't have to spend money caring for print books that no one's reading, I can spend more money freeing up archives that are not otherwise accessible, right? So it's a it's unfortunately a fixed resource game. Um, you're constantly having to figure out on what day can I rob Peter to pay Paul, knowing that on the next day I'm going to have to rob Paul to pay Peter, kind of thing. So, it's a it's a great point. I'm actually your your response makes me think of all the national partnerships. So we've been talking about libraries or archives as almost standalone institutions, right? It's a deep relationship with an archivist, but. OAC, the Online Archive of California, the whole point was to start thinking about what's the national cooperative. Um, and I think that's a, a future trend. A thousand archives just yeah. in that one. Yeah. yeah. I, um, we're going on and on. Uh, let's, uh, so are there other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, Rex, you mentioned the restrictions. And I don't know much about archiving, but I don't understand why anybody would uh, submit their uh, their stuff for archives if no one can see it. How do you make those decisions and what's what's the restriction all about? Could you help me understand a little more about that? It's not that no one can see them. Um, there, there's a couple of different variations on that. Sometimes people can see them, they just have to apply to see them. It's just kind of not open. Um, you know, at, at Rutgers and probably at UCSD, people can just walk in and they used to be able to just walk in and request materials. We had a a flood last year, most of our collections are off-site, so that doesn't happen anymore. Um, so there are some people who just feel that, okay, but I've, I, I don't think that everybody should be able to have access to this, but maybe somebody who's writing a book or, you know, they used to say, like, serious scholars, which I find kind of offensive as well, um, they can see my stuff. The other thing is often these restrictions, they're not restrictions forever. They're often restrictions for a certain amount of time. So somebody might say... I, I want these papers to be restricted till you know 50 years after I pass away because I've said some really truly terrible things and done some terrible things in my life and I, I want to make sure I'm long gone before anybody finds out about them. <laughs> I, I think that's often the case. And what I was saying before about third-party privacy, about, you know, okay, I'm fine with everybody knowing what I've done, but this other person's probably going to sue me if I let it get out that they did this thing. So... This is just often a part of what happens. Certainly, to get a collection where the entire collection is restricted, that would be pretty. That would be pretty difficult, or and it would make us unhappy. But you do get things where they're just portions that you know are going to be restricted. Also, if you're talking about someone famous or well known, um, you're going to kind of put up with some of their demands to ultimately get their their papers. Thank you. So let's go for the last question over here. The question I have for all the art panelists here is what about the Internet Archive, the nonprofit run out of this quirky building in San Francisco that really has reached out from audiovisual, book preservation, now has a big government document, library preservation, and access going with the Canadian libraries. And I just want to hear, I know there's a lot of issues in terms of copyright authors and all that, but it would be interesting to hear brief comments from each of you. Thank you very much. You know, it's funny, we, we talk about kind of sending our stuff there sometimes when we kind of can't get our, our act together on um, getting certain things digitized. I think it's, it's a really helpful resource. I think from time to time we found things that we like to think in terms of, well, this is, you know, this is Rutgers property, but if it's in the public domain, 
um, it, it doesn't, it's not really our property. It's just something that, that they're able to, to use. Uh, certainly, we, we look at some of their, their products for archiving websites, um, and, and it's just really super helpful that those kind of tools are out there and that people are out there who can really devote those resources to, to solving those types of, of critical issues of, of making sure that we capture the records. That's a, a great point. Uh, Brian, conclude Yeah, I mean, I, I think for all its warts, and, and there are plenty of them, um, and, and the, the outsized personality behind it, you know, Brewster Kale has, is quite an individual. Uh, the, the, there are two very different dimensions to the Internet Archive. One, Karen's described, which is we're going to archive the Internet. Well, good, because <laughs> somebody should be. Um, and so that, you know, yeah, do that. Uh, and, then, and then thereafter, it, it has become as much about, and then we're going to digitize a bunch of stuff and make it available on the archive. And... Um, you know, Brewster is a copyright radical, uh, and, and by his own admission. And there's a certain middle finger quality to Brewster. Uh, and I kind of admire that. Um, but I know that he, you know, he skirts close to the edge. Um, but when he skirts close to the edge, he's pushing the envelope for all of us, right? So yeah, yeah, you go, Brewster. Um, and, and we'll reap the benefit with any, with any luck. I mean, are archivists in a way like, you know, the flood is coming, you know, it's kind of like you've got your finger in the dike, but on a, uh, to end on a sunny note here, uh, which isn't, you know, my fort, um, uh, <laughs> you know, you have to try. It's kind of like climate. I mean, I actually uh, was on a plane back. I was in New Zealand for six months. I came back and the woman behind me was 78 years old and she was on her 18th uh, tour of duty at, I don't know, whatever station, Murdo station down there. And I said to her, we got to talking and she had a back injury. She said, that's it. I'm not going back. And I, and I just said to her, is it over? And she goes, yep, it's over. That was, it was that simple, but we have to try. And I think that's what I say, you know, when you talk about, you know, digital and server farms going down and everything else, but you have to try, you know, you can't really lose hope. You know, and I think that's, you know, to end on a note that is unfamiliar for me. Wow. Thank you. Thank you all. So please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>